Dispatch to all units, 10-3, Clear the air for all traffic and stand by for emergency traffic from your chaplain. Welcome to Chaplain's 1033 Podcast, a podcast to look at the good and the bad of public safety. Join Chaplain Dale Simmons as he talks to police officers, firefighters, EMS personnel, and deputies who struggle every day with life situations. Here is your host, Chaplain Dale Simmons. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 2 of Chaplain's 1033 Podcast. I am your host, Dale Simmons. I'm a public safety chaplain. My hope is that my interviews with public safety personnel will encourage you in your profession and help you navigate the days we're working in. Today I'm interviewing Robbie Horton. Robbie grew up as the son of a volunteer fire chief in South Georgia. Robbie's been in the fire service all his life. He worked his way through the ranks and served for over 20 years as the fire chief in St. Mary's, Georgia. Robbie is now the city manager in St. Mary's. Robbie has been a longtime friend and has experienced the life of a volunteer and a career firefighter. We talk about many aspects of the fire service. We reminisce a little about my time in St. Mary's and about the life of a firefighter, both professionally and personally. Here's my interview with Robbie. Well, hey, Robbie. Um, it's good to talk to you. I appreciate you doing this for me today. Well, it's good to see you again, as always, Dale. It's been a while since we've been together, hasn't it? It's been a, it's been a day or two, yeah. So, so just um, a little bit of um, history before. I want you to tell me something about your history, but just for folks to know, uh, I served in the uh, early 90s with the city of St. Mary's in the fire department. I spent about two years as the chief of this department. And um, long story short, you came in after I left, about six months after I left here as the chief of the city of St. Mary's. And so, um, as they said, um, some of the military folks would say, you and I have stirred some of the same dust right here in the city, yes. We've eaten a bunch of the same dust, (laughs) I think is the best way to say it, yeah. You have a long history in the the fire service. Absolutely. Um, I've known you since the early 90s. Um, So tell me a little bit about how you got into this mess to begin with. Let's see. I don't know if it's in the second chapter of the Bible or where it's at, but um, no, I was I was born in 1963. Um, at the ripe old age of about three and a half, I took my first ride in a fire truck with the lights and the sirens. Uh, my dad was the volunteer fire chief for Glen County and on the mainland, and uh, back in those days, they had one firefighter on duty so he got a call and he was keeping the baby so he threw the baby up in the front seat and that was me and we went to my very first fire call I don't I remember the fire truck and all that but I don't remember the call and all that kind of stuff Uh, went on a bunch of calls with him over the years Uh, watched him walk into a trailer fire one day and I guess I was four or five years old uh, sitting in the front seat of his car and watched him go in and watched the door basically burn down around him. And uh, terror scared me, slapped to death until he finally came out and showed me he was all right. Uh, so I, I was kind of born and raised into it. Then uh, I made up my mind in high school that I wasn't going to be involved in paramedics because paramedics hit Glen County area about 1974. 76 somewhere along in there somewhere and uh 
I did, had no ambitions of riding the box. And uh, so that kind of pushed me out of, I felt like it pushed me out of the fire service. And uh, But I had decided I was going to go off to school. And my dad came to me one day and said, son, he says, uh, you plan on going to Atlanta to go to school? How you plan on paying for an apartment? I said, well, dad, I really hadn't thought that far ahead. You know, we're a couple of months away. And he says, well, Brunswick Fire Department has got a uh, dispatcher's job that they've got set up for, uh, it's called a cadet program, and they'll let them go to school and work at the same time. Maybe a good opportunity, bone up on some of your remedial maths and Englishes that you need to, and uh, earn some money for your apartment because daddy ain't going to pay for it. And, and I got that, and I understood that. So I walked into the fire station, who the fire chief at the time was Tom Nichols, and uh, was a friend of my dad's very close friend of my dad's because he worked with both Lynn County and Brunswick. And it, he's very well known with those two departments, with the old timers. Uh, walked in, chief asked me if I really wanted a job. I said, yes, sir, I do. I kind of need one. He said, we think you can answer telephone. I said, well, I think I can. He says, good, go get a haircut and come back night at six o'clock and you go to work. So I did that roughly for about, and that was, I was 18 years old, had been 18 for a little over a month when I started, August 26, 1981. Um, <laughs> about four months into the gig, the dispatch door swung open, Captain standing there. This was back when there wasn't no 911. Okay, this was back in the day. We, have a, we had a seven-digit number we dialed Absolutely. for whatever we wanted, right? Absolutely. It was two six five one two one two, and uh, I think it was either two six five or two six four. But anyway, um, <clears throat> Captain kicked the door open. He's standing there holding a pair of bunker bunker boots and jacket and a helmet. He says, uh, "I need you to try these on and see if they'll fit." And I did. He says, "Good. Now come on, you go into the truck." I said, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. My job's in here." He says, "No, son. Your job's out here tonight." And they put me on the truck. Well, I fell in love with riding on the truck. I fell in love with the excitement of it, the uh, the fun of it. Uh, it was a lot of fun back in those days. Uh, it's still a lot of fun. But uh, so I, I never went off to school like I had planned. I was hooked. Uh, worked my way up through the ranks in the, it was late eighty. About 89, I made fire inspector, uh, would later become uh, the fire marshal and would later be the fire marshal and a deputy chief over shift. Uh, and then in 2000, I took the job here as fire chief. Um, recently made some serious choices in my life and had to look at who I am, what I'm about personally, and uh, made a transformation to city manager you you left us i can't believe no that. i haven't left her i still have turnout gear in the back of that truck <laughs> there's a radio on that table um i have fought fire since that time period okay um uh, but i did that in 2020 um and we'll, we'll probably get into that a little bit more later but that's i have been involved in the fire service all across the state of georgia i have taught fire safety education all across the state of georgia uh, have been the president of the fire safety educators group 
both South Georgia and for the state of Georgia. I've uh, been involved with Firefighters Association, Fire Chiefs Association, International Fire Chiefs Association, all those wonderful agencies, and they are wonderful, and they all have their place. Uh, but I guess that's the quick snapshot. You you did some uh, you did some teaching in the school system in in Glen County. We did. And did do I remember correctly that you modeled that program for Glen County that you put together where you taught some fire stuff to elementary kids? We actually went into the elementary schools in Brunswick, in the city of Brunswick. And uh, we had a program, and I want to say it was we'd go in six times over a three-week period, and we'd teach some sort of fire safety lesson. Um, actually made them participate. They had homework. We we had to grade it, just all kinds of things. We had a, it was with um First graders, second graders, first graders. Uh, but yeah, we did. It was good stuff. It's good stuff back in the day. Kids are kids are real important to me. So you spent uh, one of the things I remember, and I, I don't want to forget about this, Robbie. Since we're talking about this, I there are a lot of folks in the department I'm still with and, and that I see as I talk to different people that talk about um, being able to move up in the department. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I remember you telling me once, uh, and of course there were several guys in the Brunswick department, um, one guy in particular that went to America's, it's retired now, Steve Marino, who also went to America's and became fire chief there. and. Mm -hmm. Um, you told me one time that when you came here that you had applied, if I remember correctly, seven different times to be chief of department. Thirteen. So I missed the number a little I put, bit. I put 13 applications out before I finally got this So, <clears throat> I mean, why did you, why did you keep, why, why didn't you just go to heck with it and quit? What, what made you look at your situation and feel like, you could do what you wanted to do. I personally thought I had the skill set uh, to do the job. Uh, and I could have stayed right where I was at and eventually probably been, or give the chiefs after the chief that was in, uh, Lee Stewart, who was the chief when I left, could have given him a run for the money. There was no doubt in my mind. That's not being cocky. It was just, I understood the full picture uh, I understood the prevention side. I understood the training side. I understood the, the hands-on shift work. And I understood some, a lot of the political side of it that the chief was actually dealing with. Um, but in the same token, it, it was like I needed... And, and for me to leave Brunswick was huge, let me say that. Because you had been with them how long when you left? 19 years. Okay. I was born and raised in Brunswick. My mom and daddy were there. My aunt and uncle, my grandmother. I mean, my whole world was in Brunswick. Right. And uh, for me to leave was, was, was huge all the way around. And But I felt like I, I needed to have a separation in a lot of different areas. One being that I spent the better part of my career in Brunswick up until about well, the first six years of my career being known as Little Tommy, because that was my dad's name. Right. And my dad was a, 
he was a firefighter's firefighter. He was a fireman. You know, uh, I've got the pictures and the stories and just, you know, I watched him one morning. It was a Saturday morning. Uh, our school was out for something, and I don't remember exactly what, what day it was. But Mom came and woke us up. She said, hey, your, your dad wants to see you for a minute. And uh, my sisters got them up, and we he was sitting in his chair putting on his boots like to go to work. And uh, I noticed he had bandages around his hands. And I didn't really, at that young age, I didn't know what that was all about. And uh, we walked up to him, you know, expecting daddy. And my dad didn't show emotions, never did. Um, he reached up and grabbed me and turned me away from him, grabbed my little sister and turned her, her away from him and just pulled us in a big old bear hug and just loved us. Just held on for a minute or two. And I'm like, what in the world, you know, what's going on here? This is out of a deep sleep. And then reached down and slapped us on the hindies and said, y'all go on, I love you. And I didn't know for a very long time until I got in the fire service exactly what had happened. Uh, they'd had a trailer fire that night and uh, daddy was the first one on scene didn't have a fire truck he pulled up in his personal vehicle put on his gear uh, my old man wore the the roll down boots and the long coat and the helmet that was that was him and that we and we're talking about no breathing apparatus oh no it just no. That, that was the extent of the equipment that, that's, that's what he that's had. what he, that's what he did and that's okay. how he fought fire right and uh he had pulled up on scene thrown his gear on the mama came out my babies my babies my babies the trailer was pretty well involved. The kids were trapped in the back bedroom, and he could hear the kids screaming. And he literally, with his bare hands, because he didn't have any tools, nothing else, had pounded through the wall to get to them, and it was too late. And that was that was one of the many that he dealt with. But because those kids' age and our age were so similar, um, that was the first time I really realized how human my dad was. Uh, my dad, even to the day he died, was a superman and will always be. But I understood that there was more to it. Um, during my career, you know, I, we had like 13 fatalities, and I either, I think I found six of them or something like that at one time. Um, so I've, I've, I've dealt with that too now, but looking back on it and trying to help the younger generation understand, I realize that we're just human. We're normal. You and I both are normal. We've had this conversation time and yes, time again. Have. And we're, we're normal people dealing with abnormal situations, and we're allowed to have emotions. We don't allow the emotions control us there. But there's a time when you get back, um, Lord mercy, that dining room table. It's in every fire station. I don't care where you go, what situation, that dining room table is sitting right there. That's the place to talk it out. That's the time and place to cry if you got to. There's the time and place to question what you did. And soul search. You you brought up something in, in last Last month, we talked. I talked to Pam. I talked to her about her, her 
um, her kids, her, her husband at the time was a flight medic. Mm -hmm. And so both her kids grew up in a fire family. Mm -hmm. You grew up in a fire family. I've got two boys that were uh, are both paramedics who grew up in a fire family. Um, and, and I realize you've already said to me, in, in listen, my dad, your dad, is a different generation back then. There oh, were absolutely. things that happened that we didn't know a whole lot about in that, in that, in that environment, okay? But what, um, as you got older, you, you understood more about what your dad did, even before you turned 18 and went to work at the fire station. I, um, were there Christmases when he got up and left the table or special oh. events? Unwrapping, pre unwrapping presents and he have to stop because daddy's got to go to a fire call. And then as I got older, I guess I was 20, 2021, we were both sitting there Christmas morning, sisters are handing out Christmas and his pager goes off and we both get up and leave, you know, and we both caught grief for that. But yeah, I mean, because that was the right thing to do. Um. Excuse my friends, but it never pissed you off when you were a young teenager and he'd get up, I mean, and leave from things that... Yeah, it did. And, you know, and what got me about it, and I, one of the things I remember, I remember Mama, um, Mama was fit to be tied. Daddy would leave, he was an electrician by trade. He would leave work at 5 o'clock, dog tired. And he'd go straight to the fire station every night, and he would be there for an hour. And Mama couldn't understand that at all. Um, and we were sitting there one night, and I said, "But Mama, you know where he's at?" She was. That guy was old enough to kind of understand that there was some friction. Right. And I wasn't involved in the fire service at that point in time, other than chasing stuff with him every once in a while. I said, "But Mama, you know where he's at?" And I don't understand it, but he's helping people. And that was a young kid putting it together. Now, now I understand it completely because I'm as, I'm worse than he ever was. It's, I tell young married couples or people that are getting married, <clears throat> and I think I've had this conversation with one of yours. You, if you're a firefighter prior to getting married, your spouse needs to understand that you already have a, a mistress, if you will, for men and for ladies. I don't know what they call it for ladies. But there's, there's a passion. There, it, it's as strong as every bit of love that you have for the one that you marry. You've got it for this. And they don't understand that. They can't. It's hard for anybody to fathom it. They don't understand walking. We go to we go to funerals for firefighters that we don't even know. And we get the chills. We get the tears. We every bit of it because we understand what it represents and what their life represented. And that's that's probably one of the biggest obstacles that families have to overcome to survive. I mean, our business, we, we're the highest divorce rate 
high suicide rate, high alcoholism, high drug abuse, spousal abuse. I mean, we can make the list keep going on and on. Right. But we are, that's us. That's right. who we are. And it's not an excuse. Right. I agree. It's, it, that's why we're doing what we're doing right here and now. That's exactly right. To help people understand that the, the thinking to make it. I've been married. How long have you been married? Were you married? Are you married? I was married. Yeah, I mean, you I, were married. And, and, I, and I know, and, and we can say this. I don't okay. this, this is going out in November of, of 2021. My wife passed away on September the 8th, 2020. We were married 44 years together for 48 because we dated for four years before we got yeah. married. So we spent 48 years, and she was a firefighter's wife from the time I was about 29 years old. Yeah. So That was back we, when you had hair. Yes, I did have hair back then. <laughs> You're exactly right. I had hair back then. But, you know, I mean, that that's the whole thing. And I've been married, we've been married 33 years and been together for 38. We dated five, well, actually five and a half years to the day. And and the moment I knew it, and, and this, is, this is what, and I, and I kid her about this all the time, but it, it was actually what happened. We were riding down past the fire station like, you know, we're driving to, through town. We rode past my my station, my station, my fire trucks. Whether you're on duty or off duty, that's your fire station, that your is, fire trucks. That's right. And I did what every firefighter does. You look to see if they're in the house. This was before all the radios and all the fancy stuff we got now. And I just looked over that way. And we pulled up red light and stopped. She looked over at me. She says, you know what? You're never going to marry me. We don't. We didn't talk about marriage. And I said, "What do you mean?" She says, "You're never going to marry me. You're already married to that place." That was the moment I understood she got it. Right. She she totally got it. She doesn't understand it, but she's got it. Right. And I think that was a key factor in us our survivability as a couple and as a family. Um, the kids. I mean, even as fire chief, you know, Christmases, Thanksgiving. Thanksgivings were notorious. Having to get up and go. You know, dinner sitting on the table. Birthdays. You know, daddy, my birthday. Baby, I know, but I'll be right back. Right. I promise I'll be right back. But daddy, you promised. I know, honey, I'll be right back. You know, you come back in three and a half hours covered in soot, snot, and everything else. And they're going, you want to get a shower now so we can keep our promise? Sure, dear. You know, I mean, but that's the life we live. Right. You know, my parents and your parents, different generation. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of wives stayed with husbands back then because it was the thing to do. I mean, you just didn't. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't divorce, but there wasn't you divorce. Didn't, you like, didn't give up on the commitment. You didn't give up. Okay. And, and a lot of times um, we saw families fall apart after the kids left from some of our parents' generation because mm-hmm. the what what relationship they had had been a long gone, okay? We don't see that in today's generation with some of the folks that we've, um, um, that have been under our supervision as fire chiefs. Um, it's a different mentality today. Um, and you've already kind of answered this question, but let's go there a little more. There were days when Nancy was pissed at you when you got up and walked out, even if the kids weren't involved. I mean, even if it were, in other words, it didn't have to be anything special. Leave just... your wife at a restaurant yes. to find her way home. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You know, it's, but that's, that's part of the package of, of who we are, you know, 
Was she jealous of it? Absolutely she was. Still is right. to this day. I understand. You know, uh, I hadn't long taken the position here. I was working in the backyard and on a honeydew project, and I could hear the truck crank. I live five blocks from the fire station, right. my fire station, my fire trucks. Right. And uh, I hear trucks crank up. I don't miss don't miss a lick. Hear, hear the squad, sirens on the squad. Hear that fire truck, hear that Q2, and that other siren. I'm like, okay, medical call. Got it in my head. So I keep working. Now all of a sudden, off in the distance, I hear that second truck coming from down the road. And I just stop for a minute. Over my shoulder, my loving wife, you're not the fire chief anymore. Keep working. <laughs> so, yeah. You, you pay your dues, but, you know, it. a lot of it is, and especially today's day and time, our, we're not talking to our spouses. We're not communicating. And I'm not talking about texting. I'm not talking about phone calls. I'm not talking about emails. I'm talking about sitting down face-to-face and going, you need you you're not going to understand this but i need to tell you what happened so you understand um i dealt with two infant fatalities uh well more than that i had we had some children die in a fire but had a uh, six month old that his older sibling gave him a dorito and he choked on it well he blew the biggest spit bowl you'd ever seen and that was after he was thrown across the room at me in a little garden apartment. Uh, I, that was the very first one, and that was traumatizing. This kid coming through there, you know, turning blue, <clears throat> came back, and he was crying when the squad walked in the door. Second one was a four-month-old. No, that's I'm backwards. I'm sorry. The four-month-old, yeah. Uh, Six-month-old was Dorito. Four-month-old was the one that, that didn't make it. Uh, walked in, the mother, beautiful little black child, had her hair up and a little blue bow tie, black patent leather shoes, the big frilly dress that blue that matched her bow, and just gorgeous, beautiful baby. I'm talking a beautiful baby. And uh, not breathing, unresponsive. I'm trying to do mouth-to-mouth CPR the whole nine yards, and she... And I'm trying to talk to her at the same time of doing everything I can do. Uh, baby threw up in my mouth, spit it out, and kept going. You know, I mean, that's what we do. Right. <clears throat> anyway, so when my child was born, we were sitting in a restaurant, and uh, she loved string beans, loved dip them in the ketchup and then suck the ketchup off string beans. Well, she choked on it. You know, got to coughing and hacking, spitting, and well, Mama's sitting over. I'm, I'm not missing a lick. You know, she's, she's got she's, her exchange. She's, she's still breathing. She's coughing. <laughs> she's doing her thing. And there was another couple sitting right behind us that were friends of ours. And my wife is is about to panic, and she's, you know, doing all her thing, and I'm just sitting there watching. Finally, the gentleman behind us, God love him. I, he's, he is a friend of mine. He finally stood up and says, Robbie, God, aren't you gonna do something? I'm like, well, I guess I'll do something. So I reached over and I picked her up this way, threw her across my, my forearm and 
put her head down and I could feel it clear the minute, you know, she hit my forearm. I said, you mean like that? And she's like, you know, happy-go-lucky and everything's out the door. But we get in the car and the wife starts lecturing me on, I should have acted a lot sooner. And I tried to explain to her, I said, honey, she's got good air exchange. She's, she'll work it out on her own. And that's what really needed to happen there. Well, she kept grilling me because I was wrong. I didn't, you know, I was late to, to save the baby, which I didn't save mine. She did it on her own. And I, that's when the, the court popped. And I looked at her and said, listen, I'm going to put it to you real simple. You've never held a dead baby in your arms that was choking. Don't lecture me on how to do it. And then I just sat back and she sat back. Her eyes got big. She had no clue what it had gone on because I had never told her the story. Right. And so we're not we're not doing that. Our, we're we're not. Let me let me tell you the theory on on kids. Go ahead. I got and and I, I got a follow up question, but go ahead. Okay. When we bring kids into the fire service now, and I was one. Okay, I'm not pointing fingers that I wasn't anything. I was eight, been eighteen a month, a little bit more than a month. We're not raising kids in the fire service anymore. We're not. We're not teaching them about life. Now, when you and I came into business, there was a mentality of suck it up, buddy. That's right. But we're smarter than that. Not smarter, but we handle things different now. But we're not passing it on. We at least had somebody to sit there and talk to us. Son, I've been through it. I understand what you're going through. You're just going to have to find a way to deal with it. Well, we know what that lead, leads to now. Right. It leads to that alcoholism and all that other stuff that right. we're trying to combat. But I've dealt with it. Why am I sitting back holding everything I know when we've got a whole new generation of firefighters walking in the door that have never experienced it? You know, they may not do anything but close the door on a bad scene close the door on the back of a squad at a bad scene where there's our proverbial hair, teeth, and eyeball calls, you know, because you're going to see everything. And nobody's stepping up to the plate going, hey, Bubba, it's all right. It's all right. What you're experiencing right now is a normal emotion. Right. That your channels haven't changed. You just, the one thing you've got to remember that there's a place and there's a time to allow those motions to take over you. And it's usually when you're alone or around people that understand that and can talk to you about it and help you go through the process. That's the part in the fire service that's missing. Robbie, I've always felt like, and, I, when I, and I'm, a, I'm an EMS instructor, and, and I tell my students to be careful about what they share with their families because there are certain things they're not going to understand, okay? Mm -hmm. But, um, and you brought up a good point, there are certain things we need, they don't need to know all the gory details, but they need to understand some of the things we see on a regular basis. Okay? Absolutely. So, how, I mean, how much do we tell them? I mean, you've got a 25-year-old kid who's got a wife, significant other, Maybe they've got a child that's 18 months, two years old. They've just come from that pediatric arrest. Um, you know, how much do they tell their family? Um, and, and then 
to kind of piggyback onto that, um, what do we need to be teaching these kids and what do we need to be able to make available for them? Um, uh, one of the things that I want to do down the road is um, there's a gentleman here in Georgia that does critical incident stress management. And I want to talk to Scott. I want to, I want to talk to him about some of those things because that's what he teaches. Mm-hmm. How much do we tell the family? Mm-hmm. Is there too much to tell them? And what should, what should we be making available to some of our, our firefighters, EMS personnel, police officers, really doesn't matter, so that they can deal with some of the crap we see on a regular basis? That's a big, loaded question. Yes, it is. <clears throat> you, they need to understand you had a bad call. They need to understand that you're processing it and that the processing is something that, that you've got to go through, that you've got to deal with. Um, if it's a, a, an infant fatality or, or whatever it may be, they need to understand. It, I think it's okay to tell them that we had a child die. Right. We, you know, it, they're fire victims. You, I wouldn't go into the gory details of it because they don't need to carry it too. Right. Because that's, that's there's enough people, enough things that are leading into your secondary part of that question that people can lean on. Um, that critical stress management is so critical and vital to, to life. I, I don't know of another word. And and it got and and that's what got me into it. Um, The true need of it, seeing what was happening to our society, and seeing what's happening. And when I say society, I mean the fire service. Right. Um, Because people were still throwing up that old roadblock because that's what they had heard to do, and that's how you handle it. But they never heard that old man sit back and go, "Son, it's all right." They never heard that part. They don't remember that part. And that that's the part of it. And and I really think stress management is, is a twofold event when someone's dealing with, with debriefings or whatever. I would if I would have stayed the fire chief, and I'm still involved in fire service now. But I would have loved to have seen when we do a rookie school having a day for nothing but spouses. Yeah, absolutely. I was Kick everybody that. out of the door except the spouses. Right. Close the door and say, "Folks, let me explain something to you." Right. I absolutely. Your spouse is going to have people bleed on them, poop on them, puke on them, pee on them. They're going to have body parts of of other human beings that they're going to have to to handle and be exposed to that other people can't imagine. You just can't fathom it. You need to understand that, and it's going to it's going to change. At times, they're going to change because of it, but you've got to be there to help them process that. It's not your job to help them process, but you need to understand it so you can support them. Right? Hey, you need to go talk to Bubba. You 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 need to go find somebody and you need to sit and talk to. I don't know if. And you know this, and I'm going to say this in front of God and everybody. Times that I have hit that point in my life, my wife has always said, well, have you talked to Dale? Have you talked to Dale? Call Dale. And 
but that's that's what's got to happen. It's got to, or we're not going to survive as a as a a fire society, if you will. And I, and I think that's why I think that's why our, I think that's why our suicide rate has gone up. I, um, we were talking earlier about um, a website called firefighterclosecalls.com. dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy, I thought I, I could not remember his first name. Billy, Billy Goldfelder. Um, and uh, I was reading this morning about a firefighter, a 25, 26 year veteran firefighter who committed suicide yesterday. Um, so it's not, Robbie, it's not just the young people that's struggling, right? I mean, it's not just our 20 year olds and some of our 30 year olds, but we've got some, some, some of the folks who we might consider close to us and tenure uh, in age that are having the same problems. 40-year veteran yeah, chiefs it, pulling so, out in the woods and shooting themselves. So it's not just, it's not just, the, it's not just no. the young folks that are struggling through this process. And um, COVID hasn't helped. The call volume is going up. And, and that, that doesn't mean, we're not picking at the citizens of our community and saying stop calling 911. But um, our communities are getting larger. There's not as many people on the street. Um, because we're struggling with that as well. So some of our folks are seeing more and more and more of the stuff. And, and it may not be, it's probably not the call where the arm gets cut off that um, blow is the last straw. What may be the last straw is the 85-year-old lady that has nothing wrong with her, just she wants her blood pressure checked for the third time this month. Yeah. That might be the straw that causes that public safety personnel to explode. Well, and remember, you know, when it, when you start talking about stress, stress is a, it's kind of like the old CO detectors, carbon monoxide detectors. They, it layers up. It layers up over time. You know, that first call builds a layer. Every call that you go on, regardless, it, and you may not think it ever affects you at all. And then it gets, it starts pushing up on that lid, if you will, that old box. And at some point, even even if it's a my big toe hurts call, right, it can be enough to pop that box lid up, or pop that soda bottle that you've been standing there shaking all these years, to where it finally pops and releases at the most inopportune time. That is what we've got to stop. We've got to stop that layering effect. There's, there's been studies done. There's things out there. there uh, and the government as a whole, now when I say government, I'm referring to Georgia was ahead of the game for a lot of years when it came to stress management. We've just now gotten back on the bandwagon after budget cuts many years ago. Um, and, and the feder- feds have to, have as well. Um, but I have a friend, uh, can't remember his name now. I'll mess it up. Anyway. But he was he was involved in, in stress management, and they they're actually looking at how to deal with all this this minutia of stuff that layers up, and you do. Um, we had a call one time in Brunswick, uh, not long before I left, and uh, our chief at the time, Lee Stewart, he was real big on you didn't wear your bunker gear in the kitchen. I got to throw that out there now, and he was right. <laughs> As a chief, I had the same right. Way. Uh, but we had a call, and I was the, I was on the way into work, 
So I was driving my little minivan as as the as the fire marshal coming into work. Got the call. I responded straight to the call. Bunked out, geared up, ready to go in, do search and look and fight fire, do whatever I needed to do. And as I get there, and we had another couple of folks come up, and the call came in. We found the victim. We're coming out the door. Well, they sent us up to grab him. We grabbed the victim out on the grass, and we wiped the soot from his face, began CPR the whole nine yards. Rigor mortis had kind of started setting in on his, on, and you know how carbon monoxide does, it makes you go into the rigor mortis. Um, the location was familiar in my head for some reason, I don't know. Couldn't really recognize him. Uh, anyway, they transported him to the hospital and he was DOA. Uh, so I was given the task of determining the cause of the fire. Love it. That means I'm getting dirty, nasty, and just I'm going to do my thing. And uh, my dad, who worked for the city of Brunswick as an electrician at that point, he pulls up, comes walking up. I had walked out just get a swig of water. He says, hey, boy, what you got going on? I says, uh, I said, I got, I'm glad you're here. I need some help with this. I said, I got one that's looking like it may be electrical. And if it's electrical with my old man, you had to prove it. Right. I mean, it, and it, and I, I understand that now. And uh, so he said, come on, show me what you got. Show me the whole thing. I said, all right. So we go up in the house and we're walking through the house. And he walks over to the picture and he says, oh my God. I said, what? He says, this is so-and-so. I went, what? Turns out that his dad, the, the, the victim's dad and my dad were old friends. Matter of fact, daddy used to buy parts from him. And this is so-and-so. He says, you remember him because he always worked the counter. I'm like, holy crud, I do know this guy. You know, so things are clicking, you know. So we go down, we're doing investigation. Thank him. He goes on, and I'm trying to wrap up my, my scene and everything else. And I'm dirty. I'm nasty. I stink. But I'm having a good time, you know, as far as it, doing, it, doing our what, thing. what we do. Doing it's that fun do. stuff. Yeah. Well, all of a sudden, the deputy chief on duty pulls up. He says, hey, uh, chief wants you back at the station right now. I said, I can't come right now. I said, I'm about 35 minutes finishing this and I've got I can't leave he says he said that you would say that he said to get your tail back to the fire station right now and he told me it was an order I said I can't go right now he says Robbie you ain't got a choice I said I'll be there in a few minutes let me button up so I quickly did what I needed to do I'm fuming at this point. I'm I'm just livid. How dare you pull me off a fire scene? I'm trying to do my job, and you're trying to stop me, and all this. And it was for a, a debrief. So, the gentleman I was referring to earlier was doing the debrief. So I walked up there, and I've got my nasty t-shirt on, and I got my bunker pants on, covered in soot. Sling the door open and I walk in like I own the place. All the firefighters sitting around the table. I was about that big around. The chief is ready to come across the table at me because I've walked into his kitchen with a turnout gear. I take two steps and I turn around and I walk over the wall and I just slide down the wall. He looks over at the guy that was doing the debrief. He's in the, the gentleman doing debrief says, 
just shakes his head that way. Don't don't say it because he was coming. He he was fixing to read me the riot act, and uh, so they all they did their debrief and it was a fantastic job. It really was. But I'm sitting in the corner. I haven't said anything. He slides back and he says, "Well, Robert says uh, you've been awful quiet over there. Walk me through it." So I walk him through the whole process. Turns out that three of the other guys at the table also knew this individual. They had already talked about it. So I made the connection. So that was part of it. He says, Robbie, you seem kind of mad. I said, that's an understatement. Chief's coming out of the chair. He says, why do you say it like that? I said, well, a couple things. First off, I'm pretty upset that I can't finish my job and button this up and get away from it. I said, but the second thing, and I said, and and to this day, Dale, I don't know where it came from. Well, I do know where it comes from now that I've been educated. I looked at him and I said, how dare him? The old boy's face never changed. He said, what do you mean? Everybody else is like, what? I said, how dare him? Four of the people in this room knew that individual. We knew him. Three of you ate supper with him twice a month. Little supper club. No, he didn't intentionally do it, but how dare him put us in that situation? If he'd had a smoke detector, he wouldn't have died. And he sat back and he says, Robert, he says, uh, when do you go on shift? I said, well, I'll go on tonight. He said, what station? You you guys change shifts in the evening. in the evenings where yeah. most of us do mornings, but you guys did yeah. evening shifts. This change. was this was back in the day. Okay, go ahead. And uh, I said, I said, well, I'll go on tonight. He says, okay. He said, what station are you going to be at? Say about eight eight o'clock. I said, well, I'll be at station two. That's where my quarters are. He says, got a coffee pot? And I said, yes, sir. He says, I'll see you about eight o'clock. Now this was the guy leading the debrief. The debrief, yeah. Okay. And we were friends. And 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 just I Chief Stewart was um you talking about him coming across the table at you and, and, and you're a what are you, six two, six three? I'm six one. And 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 uh, Chief Stewart was about five ten, probably weighed what, hundred and fifty pounds of soaking yes. wet. But I mean he was in great shape, but this wasn't no big guy coming across the table. Uh, this is a little small guy, okay? Yeah. That, all right, go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you, you're physically seeing it in your yes, head. Yes, I am. So, um, he showed up, and I had coffee on, and uh, he said, Robbie, he said, let me ask you a question. He says, you were pretty upset today. I said, I still am. He said, good. We need to talk through this. I said, I don't know what we need to talk through. I just want to do my job. He says, no, we need to talk through this. There's some, there's some underlying stuff going on here, and I'm not sure what it is, but we've got to get to the root of it. I said, okay, we'll talk. I said, I'm open-minded about it. And I, and I was exposed to debriefing and had been exposed, and I understood what was going on, but it wasn't happening to me. That is correct. You know? And uh, so anyway, he, he, he says, how many fatalities have you been on in the fire service since you've been on? And at the time, I, I don't even remember at the time. It was like seven or eight nine or something like that and i said and i've i've actually pulled out and i counted off the ones that i've actually put my hands on some form or fashion and he kind of chuckled i said what's so stinking funny he said Robbie, you don't see what's going on and i'm i'm a seasoned vet at this point 
and like I said, I've been exposed to stress debriefing, and I understood what the purpose was, but it wasn't me. Right. Because I could handle it. He said, Robbie, layers pop, Bubba. He says, it's popped. He says, you're not upset about him. You're upset about them. Right. He says, and you're upset because you know and you take things personal, even to the point of a smoke detector being in a house. And I did. I, a fatality to me was I failed at my job. Right. And uh, not as a firefighter, but as a fire safety educator. Correct. Uh, so we walked through. It was 1.30 in the morning when he left that night. And he did me the best service that anybody could have ever done. Uh, walking me through the process and working me through, talking it through, really just listening and asking me those critical questions. You know, hey, what was the old crap moment on that call? Right. Uh, and that's what we've got to, that's what, that's what a lot of these kids today, they think it's not happening to them, and it is. It is. In a monstrous rate. We've gotten so busy handling everything we're handling, it's something that, that we forget. we're not doing. Not yeah. at least not a good enough job. Okay. I'm I'm not and I and I said this last month, Robbie, it I, I'm not jumping on our senior staff. I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's their fault, but we 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 are dealing with so much with with the shortages and with COVID and everything else going on that's we handle what we we're putting the fires out that we see at the moment and some of the embers are not getting any water put on it we're going to put them in a fire situation absolutely okay? so so we deal with that um i remember right before i left saint mary's we lost three children in a fire mm -hmm. and um i can remember going uh, the chaplain with jackson fire rescue came up for the debriefing the night of the fire and i remember going in sitting down with him in jacksonville and i'm the chief so i did my little debriefing out of town but I remember coming home and thinking I had a handle on it. And then my kids would say, Daddy, can I have a glass of water? No. You, you know, I mean, you're going, yeah. what am I doing this for? Yeah. And, and, um, and that's when I turned around and went back to Jacksonville and sat down with him again and say, um, we didn't get quite far enough the other time. We, mm -hmm. Because it's, um, you ask yourself the question, could, is there, you said this earlier, is there something else I could have done? Um, did I do everything by the book? Did I miss something? Did I not see something while I was there? And we talk about training. One of the things we say sometimes is we train like it's a real thing. So when it's a real thing, we act like we've trained. Absolutely. Um, but but even when we do that, sometimes it doesn't come out right, does it? No, absolutely not. And so we struggle with that. Well, let me ask you this. I'm going to carry you down her path for a minute. What... What is it that is missing? And we've we've talked about it in this conversation. We've talked all around it. We haven't said it. And we use the term in the fire service today like it's candy. But we haven't, we're not living it anymore. And that's brotherhood. Yeah, we're, we're not. It's family. We're not the family we used to be. No. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's any, I'm not saying... It's, it, I, I think the kids, and, and I say kids because you and I are older, and, and I, when I say kids, sometimes the older I get, 30 and 40 as a kid to where I am today. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, we're not teaching it to them. 
and because of the way we live today, because of, we could name a lot of things that have got us alienated. Mm-hmm. We're not the families right. we used to be, and I don't. We're we're just not teaching it, are we? We're not living it. Okay, that's even better. Um, let me give let me give you my outtake on the brotherhood right now. Okay. Um, Everybody throws that term up, the brotherhood, the family. Um, Many years ago in my youthful days, uh, I liked to do a lot of shooting. Uh, And I liked to do a bunch of stuff that probably wasn't kosher back in the day. Thank God we didn't have phones and it's not recorded, right? Yeah. (laughs) We'd gone, me and a buddy of mine, gone to the river. We both had pistols and we wanted to go shooting. But we wanted to be on the river and fish a little bit too. So we'd drink, throw a can up and shoot it, you know. And that was our day. We had a good time and everything else came back to the house and I I knew my weapon was on was cleared. <laughs> I thought it was cleared. So anyway, several weeks later, I thought, you know, I never and this is the day I'm supposed to go to work at six o'clock at night. And uh, so I pick up the, my pistol and I'm working the, the action. Just and about the third time it went boom. Well I dropped around, which was a three pitch seven. Smith and Wesson. So I'm counting fingers because I got powder burns across the palm of my hand. And then I realized, oh crap, that round went off in the house, mom and daddy's house. Did, did you hear? Mama and daddy's house. <laughs> it went through the wall, bounced on mama's brand new carpet in the middle of the hallway, jacket hollow point. The lead stuck in the hollow cord door. The brass went through the door into the tile bathroom. Now this is a a 50s tiled bathroom right okay get your vision right. right hit the rug in front of the sink and slid all the way over to the toilet so my sister runs up make sure i'm all right i make sure she's all right we stand there and we look down at the spot on the on mama's brand new carpet and she says well robin she says you know i might be able to sew that up a little bit and you might be able to find a piece of paneling to match the paneling out there in daddy's shop but Robbie, you in trouble. I'll do whatever I can to help you, but you in trouble. Today's time, we don't have that. Today's time, we're using brotherhood as an excuse to allow things to happen. When we see somebody in our, in mine and your generation, we see somebody fixing to make a serious mistake. Hey, don't do that. Don't go there. Don't go there. We'll talk about it later. Just don't go there right now. But if somebody did do something after we told them not to, or even if they do it without us knowing, we pick them up. Hey, what'd you learn from this? Brush the dirt off. All right, now we've learned. Now let's go on. Let's go get it. It's just like that first time you got drugged through your first house fire. Correct. You're not going to get it right the first time. I don't care how many weeks and months and years you spend in the academy. That first time, you're going to stumble, you're going to fall, you're going to bust your butt, you're going to make yourself look like a ding-dong. But there was somebody on that front nozzle or behind you. Come on, get up, let's go, let's go, let's go. Picking you up by the bootstraps to get you on down the line to do what we had to do. And that's how we learned. But that's the brotherhood that's missing. Right. It's not about, you go do whatever you want to, and I got your back. Hey, he can do whatever he wants to. No, we don't. we can't play that way. Right. That's when people get hurt. People get killed that way. We're not. 
we're accepting the brother. You're my brother because we share common goals. You and I share many. You know, and I, and I do. I consider you one of my best friends and my brother on, on all kinds of counts. We've cried together. We laughed together. We've, you know, we've done it all together. And, but we're missing that part of holding our brother responsible and policing ourselves. We don't do that anymore. We don't take care. Oh, yeah, we're all about it. We'll be there at the funeral. But are you going by to check on the wife afterwards? Right. Are you or, going by to check on the husband? Or a month later. Or Absolutely. Or six months later. Two years. Yes. Whatever it may Absolutely. be. But that's the brotherhood. That's the true, true brotherhood. And for me to, to sit there and really call you a brother, you got to earn it. Right. I don't, I don't, there's not many people. Now I'll call some brothers, and but to be that level, you, you earned it. But, but, I, but somebody with a desire in their heart that may not be perfect at what they do can fit that criteria. It doesn't mean you know everything and you've got everything down pat. Bubba, I can't walk and chew chewing gum at the same time. I can't. I mean, I make my mistakes. I made, I make them out in front of my own people. Um, as a fire chief, I was a firefighting fire chief. I made, I've made my mistakes. And I've owned them, and that's part of it. Right. Um, if, that's that's a lot of what's missing there. Yeah. If you could say something, <laughs> yeah, I already told I told you before we started. I was going to ask you this question. If I could, if you could say something to twenty twenty one year old Robbie Horton that you know today oh, that you wish twenty. It, I mean, I, I'm sure we could talk about this for another hour. Okay. Uh, because I could probably talk with you. If you could say something to 21-year-old Robbie Horton today that you think would make a difference in the way he saw what he what he was going to spend his life mm. in, what would you tell him? That's so, now you're talking about opening a question. <laughs> and I already knew ahead of time. That's what's <laughs> even scarier. The short version, don't give up on your dreams. But, man, ride that tailboard as hard as long as you can even if it's in your heart. Uh, even through the rough times, the hard times. You know, and, and I know we're getting pushed for time, but I want to I, I say this. this I had a, it takes a lot of preacher friends to get me through the life. I've got a lot of, I mean, you, I've got one that's an electrician, he's a preacher. I've got a plumber that's an electrician. I, you know, I mean, I, it takes a lot. God's, put a lot of people in my life to get me through i was i ran up on my my plumber preacher friend and he's an old country boy and he came up to me one day he said robbie says and, and we talked just general conversation we hadn't ever got real in depth and he told me one time he said robbie says for some reason i need to tell you this i said okay i'm listening he says robbie you know everybody wants to climb the mountain get to the top I said yeah he said probably you ever looked and seen what's actually on top of that mountain I said well I, I you know I knew there was a point now what I'm trying to I'm slow like we you've already know we've we notated here he said probably ain't nothing up on them mountains but rocks and goats rocks and goats he says but we're trying to leave the valley to get to the top of that mountain he said, you know what's in the valley? I said, no, but I want to know. He said, Robert, that's where the healing's at. That's where God's life waters are. 
That's when we're as close to God as we can possibly be when we're in the valley. The valley ain't a bad place. That's where we heal. That's where we get better. We're going to have to climb that mountain. But that's where we get ready to climb that mountain. The other side is, what did Christ encounter at the top of the mountain? The devil himself. I'm doing real good in the valley. And the valley ain't a bad place if you remember that. Talk and talk real quickly about um, you and I have seen a lot of leaders who get to the top and forget about the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, I also know a lot of fire chiefs today, and I've known some in the past, that got to the top but never left the valley. How important is that for us? I mean, if we're going to change the dynamics of some of the younger people that we mm-hmm. deal with, it, it, we can't get to the top and not spend... I'm not saying we got to go down and spend time with the people in the valley. That's 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 not what I'm talking about. You, you know where I'm going with this. If, if we're going to live... If we're going to live on the top of the mountain... We've either got to bring them with us or we've got to make sure they understand what's taking place in that transition. We just can't go up here and not have anything to do with those people. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. So, so, because you said this earlier about your daddy. You said he was a fireman's fireman. And I have said to people before about fire chiefs I knew, and I, and, I mean, we're patting each other on the head already in this anyway. Um, you're, you're a fireman's fire chief because... You just said it. You, you're not going to stand there and run the microphone as command. You're going to put your bunker pants and, and your BA on, and you're going in with your folks. And I'm that's, not why saying, I got, that's why I got an assistant chief. That, and, I'm not, <laughs> right, and I'm not saying I, somebody's got to lead. That, that, that's not what Absolutely. I'm saying. But if we're going to impact this generation or any generation, we cannot walk away and not be there for them and lead them from where they are. I, I remember, I can't think of the colonel's name. He was the, his first name was Tony, and I can't remember his last name, but he, he was a Marine detachment. I think he was a colonel here when I was here in St. Mary's. Yeah. And they would run 10, 15 miles. Um, and they would come through St. Mary's from Kings Bay. They'd run right down Highway 40 here, okay? But when you saw them running, Tony was not in his vehicle following him. Tony was in the front of the line leading his guys, even though he had all the brass on his collar. That's what I'm talking to you about. How important is that if I'm a leader or even if I'm that 22-year-old kid that wants to be that leader, how important is is that concept and what we're dealing with today? I think it's critical. Um, To have your junior people excuse me junior people look at you and ask the question what is the old man doing why is the old man doing that he's got people that can do that I think they need to see that that they that they know that if their butt's in trouble even the old man would come to get them you know uh, I'm I love leadership stuff on especially historical leadership one of the one of my favorites is is Abraham Lincoln like him or don't like him I don't care but Lincoln was one of the first 
presidents, matter of fact, he's probably one of the only presidents that went to the battlefield and sat down with his men on the battlefield and had coffee. That dining room table that we talked about earlier, that's a lot of where my learning came from, is watching and listening to my old chiefs, Tom Nichols, uh, Dick Watson, uh, Yeomans, they you know, and the old captains and my officers listening to them talk about their war stories and then asking the question of why. Were you afraid? I, I remember I, I was a stupid Greenhorn chief when I was here. I probably should have never been in the position, okay? But I was not afraid to pick up the phone and call a chief that I had met at the Chiefs Association mm-hmm. that had been doing it for a while and say, mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. Tell me what I need to do to handle yeah. this situation. Is that... Absolutely. That's what we're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not about chiefs. It's also about firefighters. It's also about captains and officers. No, they're not the same department, but you know what? They may have gone through something similar to be able to help you pull it up and and walked away. Walked away that we're traveling. And going back to the mountain and the valley, it's about the journey. That's what it's all about. That you know, that's what I would want to tell me. 20 years ago, going back to answer your other question, enjoy the journey because, man, it is 40 years ago when I, you know, walked into that fire station, I had no idea where it was going to take me. I didn't take this job because I walked away from the fire service. I took this job I'm in right now because it's an extension of a way to help people and help more people. That's why I took it. That's a whole and, other, and it, that that's next time you come. Uh, okay, and that's but, but that's that's the thing we hear when you ask a firefighter, a EMT, a paramedic, a police officer, a sheriff's deputy. It doesn't really matter if you if they get if you get them really laid back, mm-hmm. and you say, "Why do you do what you do?" That's the answer we get, right? I just I want to I want to help. I want to do something for someone. Well, in 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 the essence of time because you and I can spend probably another three hours <laughs> yes we could um, discussing the why um, there is a there's a process called risk cause analysis and you ask the question why five times to get to the root of why something happened right okay you don't accept the first four but you when you get to the fifth one you're probably getting really close to the true reason why something happened. And something that I found, and I've challenged some folks that I have mentored over the years, is asking that question about why you do what you do. Right. And the reason you go through that extra, and you don't accept the fact it's cool, because it is cool. There ain't no doubt, you know. I'm a red light junkie. I know I am. Absolutely. (laughs) All of those things, but get down to the meat. I mean... And I, and I sit here and say, because I can help people more in this position. Well, there, there's, there's another stage to that, too, and that's another conversation. But we need to go through that in our business. After you come in and you're seasoned, and the first time you hit that thing, am I really doing what I need to do? Well, go back and look and dig down to find out what the true reason at that point in time in your life right. was that you got into the business. You know, what was it about it? It wasn't all adrenaline. It's not. It, Yeah, I mean, people go jump out of air perfectly good airplanes. Right. But that don't mean I want to do it ever again. Yeah, and and I ain't going to do it. Me period. neither. I'm with you. So, anyway, 
But that's what, what you find at the bottom of those five questions is what you hold on to to get you through those bad times. Correct. To get you that healing that you need to get to that next mountain. Correct. Um, and you're right. We need to do this again because there's a lot of other stuff we can talk about as we do this. Okay. I, and, I, and I would challenge everybody. There's a book by... Hold on a minute. It's right here. Simon... Simon Sinek. Yes, he's one of my Start friends. with why. Yes. Um, he doesn't get down into the weeds with it like that, like I'm talking about here. But I think if you apply that to yourself, right, it, it can be the lifeline that people need to get on down the road. SimonSinek.com. It's S-I-N-E-K. Um, he, um, about three or four years ago, I get an email from him, which is a statement. It's just a little statement about life. And if you ever get an email from me, there's a statement at the bottom of my email. And Simon's, one of his, I change it periodically, one of his statements is on the bottom of my email. And so you're exactly right because he makes you ask not just the why question, but he makes you probe further than just the basics. Yeah. So that's, that's a great. That that's, is, that's a whole conversation yes, right it there. Is. It sure is. And I agree. Thank you, my friend. We love will, you, brother. We will love you too. We will do this again um, in the near future, and um, maybe um, we can bring Nancy into this, and we could talk a little bit about, you know, what's going on from the spouse's perspective, and and because I, I think that's just as <laughs> that important. That'll be interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's just as important if we're going to talk about how to survive in this business of public safety. I Absolutely. think it's important that folks need to hear from. Because there are certain things about that we don't understand. Because, I mean, not because we're just guys, but because we're so engrossed in what we do. Oh, I've seen men and women on both sides. It it just doesn't go in, right? It does. Thank you very much. My last comment to the crowd, be true to who you are. Always learn and be good to one another. Amen. Thank you, my friend. All right, bro. Well, I think we could have talked for another hour, and actually we did as we went to supper after the interview. I hope you were encouraged and heard some things that will help you as you continue to navigate this time we're living through. Next episode, I am interviewing Demetrius McNeil. Demetrius is a customs agent who has worked as an officer with the ports where international shipment is taking place. He also served several years as a border agent in Texas, and shares firsthand the struggles of dealing with immigration and real experiences in dealing with those crossing the border. Man, I can't tell you again how blessed I am that you're taking the time to listen. Please let me know what you think. Email me at chaplaindalesimmons at gmail.com. If you like what you're hearing, please rate this podcast on the platform you're listening with. You are constantly in my prayers as I pass units of all professions during my daily life. One final thing, please read my lips. You are making a difference. Stay safe, and I will see you in the next episode.